I am not a musician nor the son of a musician, but um, I do feel a sort of lack of resolution in songs when I experience it. Do you feel that in that hymn? It kind of, the way that the verse ends, uh, it makes you feel like there's more to come. Pay attention to it. I think that Ed Clowney um, intended uh, for that to occur um, because, as we've been saying about lamenting, there's something distinctive about a Christian lament. Just like the rest of the world, we grieve and groan because of the sadness and the brokenness and the hurt and the pain that we experience in our own life, as well as we experience in the life of those around us and the world around us. But unlike the world, we grieve and groan with hope because we grieve and groan in the knowledge, the sure and certain knowledge, that the one who called is faithful and he will be faithful to bring to perfect completion the work that he has begun. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 24 today as we get into this fifth of five discourses in Matthew. Now, Matthew has been structuring his gospel account around these discourses, these discourses of Jesus. This one is called the so-called last days discourse. And boy, oh boy, in the South, this is an exciting passage. We're going to pull out the Sunday paper. We're going to find out what all the earthquakes mean. Not. The last day's discourse is the last of five. The first of the five discourses was the discourse we know as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's important that you keep that in mind. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount started with blessed, 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 blessed. And this last day's discourse begins with woe, 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 woe to the Pharisees, woe to those who have been captivated by and embody the spirit of this age. It's the life of cursing that stands in contrast to the life of blessing, which is ours freely and fully and solely through the life of Jesus Christ. Last week we began, we looked at Jesus' lament over Jerusalem and his comments about the destruction of the temple and now we get into the continuing conversation as he continues in Matthew chapter 24. I am going to, however, start reading from Matthew chapter 23, verse 39. And I have decided, contrary to the bulletin, that we are going to continue reading through verse 35. So read with me, Matthew chapter 23, beginning with verse 39. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Now Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him, when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, and he answered them, "You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down." And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, "Tell us, when will these things be?" And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the, let the one who is in the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight might not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe them. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So, if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall down from heavens, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds and from the end of heaven to the other. So from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, 
you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of God's peace to us through his son, Jesus Christ, as counterintuitive as that may sound. It's at times like this and passages like this especially that we need the Spirit to help us to see, discern, and understand. So let's go to him and ask him for help. And so, Father, we do come to this, your word, at this hour, at this time and this hour, And we pray that in a very special way now, by your Spirit, as our loving Father, who has demonstrated his abounding love and steadfast faithfulness to us through his Son, Jesus Christ, that you would meet us and you would speak to us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to leap with rejoicing, even in very frightening circumstances. For we come as your children. In Jesus' name, amen. It is true, isn't it, that we live in very frightening times. Colin Hansen, the editor of content at Gospel Coalition in a recent interview on ABC News said, we live in a time of fear and loathing, to which I might add fear-mongering. And there is plenty of fodder for our fears, whether we're looking at headlines or whether we're just looking at our own families or whether we're looking at our own hearts. There is plenty of fodder for fear. There is plenty of good reason to grieve and to groan. Whether we're looking within, whether we're looking at the relationships in which we find ourselves or looking at the broader world around us, there is plenty of reason to grieve and to groan. As we look at the world, as we face the world and come face to face with our own frailty, our own lack of strength and lack of stamina, our own foolishness, we don't understand what is happening our entire inadequacy for the circumstances in which we find ourselves, whether it's in our job or in our career or in our family or in our school. Even in our own valley, we see shattered families everywhere. We see children truly who are lost and wandering about, not knowing which end is up. And so we pray, just as the Lord taught us to pray, saying... And I know some of you thought, oh, no, 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 this is not the time because I just used the key word that causes you to reflexively begin saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But now stop. Take a moment. Look at your bulletin. Turn back. Page two. We say it every week. We say it almost automatically. We say it almost without thinking. 
which is a mixed blessing. It's a blessing because that means that we are internalizing something that is of absolute necessity for life in this world. But it's not, it's a mixed blessing because we often are not paying attention. We've been taught to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's right to pray for that. It's a prayer, isn't it? For the safety of God's reign in a dangerous world, for the security of God's presence in an unstable and volatile and insecure and unpredictable world. It's a prayer for peace in a world or a home at war. It's a prayer for rest in an exhausting world. It's a prayer for refreshment in a dry and thirsty land. We love that prayer. But like the old trapper, sometimes the old trapper guide and dances with wolves, if you remember the movie, who stumbles upon a dry, dry and parched bones of a skeleton in the middle of the prairie, and he remarks, Now there's someone back east saying, Now why don't that boy write? And often as we pray the Lord's Prayer, we find our hearts saying, Now why don't that God answer? If God is so good, why does life continue to hurt so bad? In a world that hurts so bad, how long until he answers? When, when, O oh Lord, will you answer? We like the when question because most of us feel like we can endure anything if we just know when the end is. And so the disciples ask, Whoa, the temple's going to be destroyed. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Whew, when will these things be? And Jesus doesn't ask, answer the when question. Darn it. Although it's interesting, isn't it? that in most approaches to this passage, we stubbornly insist on trying to figure out the when answer. But he's not giving us a when answer. He's telling us what and who, how, why. He's not telling us when. The disciples, even after the resurrection in Acts chapter 1, they'll say, oh, okay, is now the time that you're going to bring the kingdom? And he says, it's not for you to know the time. It's for you to know the who. Having taught his disciples in the first discourse to pray for, to wait for, to watch for, to long for, to work for, to live for the kingdom to come, and the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven. The disciples now ask, when? And Jesus, being the good teacher that he is, answers the question, not that they asked, but the question they should have asked. 
When these things begin happening, the question they should have asked is, how shall we understand them? How shall we respond to them? How shall we live faithfully in the midst of it all? For when the kingdom of God comes, when the will of God exerts itself on earth, in our world, in our lives, in our families, as it is in heaven, brothers and sisters, it will unavoidably mean dismantling. It will unavoidably mean a reordering, a reorganizing, perhaps even a wholesale replacement of the powers and the priorities and the habits, the kingdoms, tiny little kingdoms and huge worldwide kingdoms of this world in order that his own kingdom may be established. We are so afraid of losing our tiny little kingdoms that we have worked so hard for that when the kingdom of God for which we pray week after week actually begins its good work in us and among us and through us and around us, it often surprises and so frightens us because it unavoidably involves the dismantling of our lives, the dismantling of lives around us, the dismantling of the world around us. It unavoidably involves removing aspects of our being and our life and our world that we deem essential and indispensable. In our surprise and fear, we find ourselves then loathing others and reacting to them in anger. Sometimes, before we know it, in our fear and loathing, we find ourselves resisting and rejecting and discarding the very thing for which we pray. Namely, the kingdom of God's love in our life. The kingdom of God's love in our world, the kingdom of Christ's peace in our being, in our home, in our career, in our world. Recently, one of my favorite modern artists, contemporary artists, is Makoto Fujimura who is known for his technique of using traditional, traditional Japanese technique called Nihonga. And he describes it in this way. He describes it this way. He says this. He takes minerals and he pulverizes them. That's the language he uses. He pulverizes them. These minerals are beautiful in their own right, but he can't use them in that way. As the artist employing this technique called Nihonga, he pulverizes these minerals and he mixes them with a hot glue so that he says you're basically making your own paint. That process of pulverization, that trauma, that is the word he uses, to inflict on the on the stones, the craftsmen of old have developed, they break apart the minerals in a particular way so that, when, so that if you were to look at the pigments under a microscope, they would not be uniform. They would be different shards. 
and then they are used in the artist's hand and layered into a beautiful new thing. Christ, you see, is like that artist or that king working to create his final, most glorious work, what Scripture calls the kingdom of heaven. A masterpiece of beauty and righteousness and justice. But as Psalm 2 suggests, that work involves pulverizing the kingdoms of this world wherever they may be found, as far as the curse reaches. So when God begins to answer the prayer we've been taught to pray, the question is, how shall we live? How shall we survive? How shall we thrive? How shall we even participate? And I want to suggest that in our passage today, we are given hints. So we are not going to look, I promise you, we are not going to look at that verse Verse 7, about nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom and famines and earthquakes in various places. I promise you, don't hope. I am not going to tell you what nations we're talking about. I'm not going to tell you what kingdoms we're talking about. I'm not going to tell you what famine is in view there. And there is a lot to be said in this chapter that we can talk about that we will not talk about. But what I do want us to see is this. That when we see these things happening, the question is, how shall we then live? How shall we live faithfully? How shall we live well? Hopefully we're going to see that we are to stand guard. We are to stand firm. And we are to fight well. And we are going to learn a little bit about how to do that. First, stand guard. Notice. Verse 4, so Jesus answers them. See that no one leads you astray. He goes on to, to say that there will be people who are trying to lead you astray. There will be people who are spreading rumors of all kinds of violence. And then in verse 6, see that you are not alarmed. Stand guard against the frailties of your flesh. We are but creatures made of flesh and bone. In case you did not know, we are not God. We do not know the beginning from the end. The end from the beginning. We are but flesh. And our curiosity is a mixed blessing. Because it keeps us learning and looking, but it also makes us vulnerable to lies and deceits. Tell us, say the disciples, when will these things be? That's a good question. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The curiosity is good. The danger is that the curiosity overrides and makes us vulnerable to anything that poses as an answer. So stand guard against your curiosity. Suspect your curiosity. Question your curiosity. Hold the reins tight 
on your curiosity. Because it makes us vulnerable to our own foolishness. Foolishness born of our ignorance. The fact of the matter is, we don't know what the next moment will bring. We don't know what the next day will bring. We make plans, James tells us, but the wise among us says we make plans if according to the will of God. Because we simply don't know what tomorrow will bring. Not only do we not know what tomorrow will bring, but we don't know what, is, what, the, what unseen things are happening in one another's lives. Never mind in the spiritual realm. We simply don't know. But not only foolishness born of our ignorance, but it's also a foolishness born of our arrogance. We're too quick to say, oh, I know, oh, that's it. And so too quick to hear the rumors and believe them and run after them. Don't be alarmed. Guard against your curiosity and your foolishness and your fear. Don't be alarmed. We are prone to draw alarming conclusions. I tell you what, one time I was on a trip recently with someone in the car. They reached over because, hey, it's one o'clock. We, we can catch rush in the rush. I said, no, please, don't do that. I'm frightened enough as it is. We are prone not only to draw alarming conclusions based on our limited knowledge, but we are prone to commit to alarming conclusions. We fail, we, because of our ignorance and our arrogance, we fail to account for all the data that we, and so we draw these alarming conclusions. So think, for example, in the, in, in the biblical account of Ahaz's fear. Remember, Ahaz was surrounded by armies and they were threatening to take Jerusalem out. And Ahaz said, I have no hope. I have no more options, no more strategies. And Isaiah said, Ahaz, you're not accounting for all the data. You're not accounting for the steadfast promises of the Lord and the might of the Lord to defend his people. Oh, don't bother me with details. You take care of that, Isaiah. I'll take care of the military things. Ahaz was paralyzed in fear and foolishness because he refused to account for all the data. An opposite example comes to us also from Scripture. Think of Joseph. Think of the story of Joseph. He's sold into slavery and goes into a land that he doesn't know, to a people whose language he doesn't speak. He's thrown in jail. And he doesn't know how long that sentence will last. And what does he say about it at the end? What you intended for evil, our Lord intended for good. I... I have to confess that if I were in Joseph's shoes, I'm not sure that I would have been able to say that. Because I have such a deeply rooted habit of failing to account for all the data. Failing to account for the very real steadfast love of the Lord in our world. But 
Brothers and sisters, we live in a time and culture of fear and fear-mongering and loathing. Because as the battle for our souls intensifies, we tend to lose our heads. We tend to panic. We tend to rush around and gather up all those things that we think we're going to need and throw them in the cargo trailer and rush off into the wilderness so that we might be safe from the falling bombs. And so we misread our circumstances. We misidentify our friends and misidentify our enemies. Let me give you an example. Brothers and sisters, the comfort and ease that our culture promises us and offers us and holds out to us is a strategy of our enemy who's seeking to destroy our souls. And failing to recognize it as a strategy of the enemy, we find ourselves loving those that promote the promise and we loathe those who resist or try to expose the lie of the promise. And so we find ourselves being led astray. So we should be standing on our guard knowing that we are in a battle, a life and death battle for our souls. And we need to stand firm. We need to stand firm in the field of battle. There will be many who will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. You will hear of wars and rumors of war. They will deliver you up. You will be hated by the nations. You see there in that next section, beginning with verse 15. Do not go down and take what is in the house. Let the one who is in the field not go back to get his cloak. Let's pray that, it's not, that you're not pregnant. Pray that you don't have little children. Pray that it may not be in the winter. Pray that it may not be on the Sabbath. That's a comment worthy of an entirely separate sermon. We must stand firm. We must recognize the field of battle. We must recognize the battle that rages all around us, that rages among us, and that rages within us. Many will come. There will be wars. There will be rumors of wars. There will be nation rising against nation. There will be kingdom against, rising against kingdom. There will be arrests and imprisonments and executions. We will become objects of hatred. And there will be abominations. Verse 15. Wow. The abomination of desolation. Abomination throughout Scripture is used as, as um, um, items or acts of egregious faithlessness that bring about desolation and destruction. There will be lies, there will be false hopes. Here's the Christ. There will be false saviors. The battle is all around us. 
But brothers and sisters, here's the thing. The battle rages among us. There will be betrayals. Many will fall away. Many will betray one another, will hate one another. There will be a lack of love. There will be abandonment. There will be isolation. Because the battle rages not only all around us, but it does rage among us. How is that even possible? If we're careful to lock our windows and doors, how is it possible that the battle rages among us? Well, because it's a battle for our soul that rages within us. It's the battlefield in which we find ourselves, the battlefield in which we find ourselves battling in our own heart extends in all directions. It extends to our tomorrows and to our yesterdays. It extends to our friends and to our enemies. It extends to our God and to the depths of our soul. Where does a battle for the king? is a battle for establishing his reign. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to fight well. Verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. What does that mean? There's a sense in which this is a prophetic word and there are various horizons of fulfillment. And there's a sense in which so much of what is being spoken about here is fulfilled by 70 A.D. within this generation. Indeed, Jerusalem is sacked. The temple is destroyed in 70 A.D. and it is no more. So there's a sense in which it is fulfilled even in the lifetime of that generation that first heard those words, even as Jesus says. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So there's this immediate end that is in view, but there's this also this general end that is in view. And let me skip. There's the final end that is in view because you will see, you, you remember that these words are sort of an echo of what we find in Revelation. As John describes the final end. But the fact of the matter is that between the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and that final end, the fact of the matter is that these things are true in a general sense in every age and every generation. We all see it in our generation. We see it in our own hearts. We see it in our own families. We see it in our own neighborhoods. We see it in our own churches. And so we need to develop this skill to discern. Notice the, the language that, is, that pervades this passage. See, look, discern, understand, know, do not go. We must be discerning, for that is how we fight the battle, and we must proclaim. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony. And in so doing that, proclaiming in word and in deed, we participate in this great thing that is happening. The answer to the prayer 
the coming of the kingdom. Indeed, the coming of the king. How in the world can we do this? Some people have read that last verse that we just read, verse 14, and they've said, and so we've got to get out. You and me, we've got to go to the ends of the world. We've got to tell everyone so that the kingdom will come. But I don't know about you, but that's kind of an overwhelming task, and I'm not entirely convinced that it's possible in the way that they conceive of it. Because I am fickle and frail and foolish. Perhaps you are too. And so the question is, now hear me. The question is this. How? How can we participate in all of this? How can we live faithfully in all of this? How can we maintain eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to discern in such confusing times? Well, we are to watch, to wait, to listen, to hear who is doing what. It's so easy in passages like like this to lose our heads, to lose sight, to lose our bearings, to get caught up in the details. Oh, my word, is that what's happening in my life? Is that the earthquake that he had in view? And so to become alarmed. And so to stockpile food and weapons. And to build bunkers. It's so much easier to become alarmed and become frightened and to become fused, become confused when the battle thickens all around us. And therefore, we must remember And we must remind one another that this is the work of the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Go all the way back. Chapter 23, verse 39. You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This entire last discourse is about the coming of the king and his kingdom. And when the king comes and when the kingdom comes, he will dismantle the kingdoms of this world wherever he may find them. In order that he may establish his own kingdom. We must remember, brothers and sisters, and we must remind each other because this is the heart of the battle. Who is doing what? This is the coming of Christ the King. This is the coming of Christ's kingdom. This is the coming of his peace in a world at war. This is the work of Christ the King to seek out the woe in every cubic inch of his world, whether it's in our own hearts, in our families, or the world around us, and replace it with the blessing of his shalom. This is the kingdom of Christ coming to dismantle, destroy, and replace the kings and the kingdoms of this world. Then we need to understand that if that is the case, and if it is true that we are in him, then we are simultaneously objects of that great work. He is dismantling us, the kingdoms of ourselves, so that he might rebuild in us the kingdom of Christ. 
We are the objects as brothers and sisters here in this room. The reason that he binds us together is that as we are together, we become his instruments in each other's lives to expose the kingdoms of self that are killing us in order to establish in us the kingdoms of his love for one another. We're the objects of his great project. But we're also the agents of that great project, you see. Because we are the heirs of life, now we live that new life. And so, brothers and sisters, you need to understand that whenever we seek to do justice, that is, that is bringing the kingdom. Whenever we seek to walk in mercy, that is bringing the kingdom. Whenever we seek to walk humbly before our Lord, that is bringing the kingdom. Moms and dads, whenever you correct or discipline a child, you're saying yes to the kingdom of Christ, you're saying no to the kingdoms of self. That's Christ's work in you. That's Christ's work through you. When we love our neighbor, brothers and sisters, we are actually building the kingdom of God. And we're saying no to the kingdom of selfishness. Because not only are we the objects of his great work, but we are the agents of his great work. So that now in Christ, we walk, work to do justice and to seek mercy and to walk humbly with our God. So we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we look around and here we behold God is in fact answering that prayer in Christ. Because we who once were dead have now been made alive together with him. So that we walk in this world as agents of that life. Agents of his coming kingdom. That the world would know that he is the living God. Let's go to him in prayer. So, Father, we do come and we do pray that you would indeed give us eyes to see.